0: You know,
1: Paul, I just I just never quite know
0: where to start, <laughs> but- Nope, this was it. I think you nailed it. No this, notes.
1: <laughs> this, of course, is The Curbsiders. <laughs> I'm Dr. Matthew Frank Wado, an absolute professional at podcasting, <laughs> Yep. and uh, tonight on the show, we are going to be talking about uh, stroke and TIA. This is one of our triple distilled episodes where we are going to recap some of our favorite high yield pearls on this topic. Paul, before you introduce our third co-host. Can you tell the audience, what is it that we do on this show?
0: Yeah, Matt, we (laughs) – perfect. Again, no notes. Um, I stopped digging. (laughs) You struck oil. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to review clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Tonight, as you alluded to, is a little bit different in that we're going to sort of wax nostalgic about an episode with the fundamentals. We're going to talk about stroke and TIA, as taught to us by Dr. Chris Favilla, who gave us a lot of fantastic pearls. But before we get to all this content, we should introduce our third spectacular co-host, who is the one, the only, Beth Garbs Garbatelli. Beth, how are you?
1: Doing great. (laughs) (laughs) It didn't sound very convincing. (laughs) We got permission off air to call you Garbs on the show. I mean, yeah. I know you'll be a, a you'll be a doctor before we know it, Paul. She'll be a she'll be a doctor, but uh, so we're, we have permission to call her Garbs, so uh, that's that's what we'll do. Garbs, I, I know you're I know you're a, a burgeoning or a budding <laughs> budding budding expert on stroke and TIA. Where should we start?
2: So one thing that he mentioned that I really liked and I think is a good learning point too and a good learning exercise is um when you get the imaging for this you know stroke TIA which inevitably you will correlate the imaging with the presentation. I think that's like a helpful thing to sort of reiterate to, you know, yourself and like helpful to be thinking about just because it sort of ties it all together, ties together that, you know, it's a throwback to when you're in neurology rotation or when you're in your neuro class thinking about localizing the lesion. Like, okay, there's this little like density in this location. Does that actually fit with the presentation of the symptoms? And he he did highlight that and I liked that.
0: Yeah, I think Matt busted out the the phrase motor homunculus, which a couple of times, I think he just like saying homunculus, but I, I think Dr. Favil's larger point was thinking about the neurovascular territories that might be affected. And if it doesn't make any kind of neuroanatomic sense, then you might not be dealing necessarily with stroke, which I thought was even if you don't have the homunculus memorized, you probably have a general sense of sort of what parts of the brain do what. And so if it doesn't if the laterality itself doesn't make sense, that's um, that's when you should maybe sort of reevaluate your initial diagnosis was I think one of the initial takeaway points that, that I took from this.
2: Yeah, that was great. I mean, I think that's like so helpful when you're trying to tease out stroke versus encephalopathy, you know, trying to think about the symptoms being more vague or waxing and waning and things like that.
1: Yes. He he mentioned that the person that just has this kind of like vague confusion or bilateral symptoms that, that are there and then go away, he said that that's rarely going to be a TIA. He thinks of like what really would get him thinking of TIA is when someone has like a focal neurologic symptom that like quickly reaches maximal intensity, and then it might go away. And we spent a lot of time talking about how the definition of TIA has kind of changed, where in the past, it was just like, if if the symptoms were there and lasted less than 24 hours, it's a TIA. But he said, really, now, you have to get the MRI because... We know now that some of those people that did have transient symptoms, when you get an MRI, you'll actually see that there's a stroke there. And um, part of the reason that's significant is because the presence of a stroke on MRI is like strongly predicts the recurrence of stroke, which is kind of, I mean, kind of obvious, but also kind of terrifying.
0: Yeah, along the obvious but terrifying lines, I think he made the point like a TIA is just a stroke that dissolved before you had a chance to see it. And like when you mm-hmm. just say it out loud like that, you're like, ooh, <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's not great. Like you just – you almost view it as something potentially benign. Um, But so if you think about it in that yeah. particular context, it's yeah, not so much.
1: And the case that Molly had presented to him was a case of amaurosis fugax or fugax, however you pronounce it. I don't know. Beth, do you know how to pronounce it? No. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, so we're free pass. Anyway, so this this woman had she had like two episodes in a relatively short time period, and uh, we started talking about the the ABCD two score, which is a score that can help you determine like what's this person's risk of having another stroke or TIA. And because we were saying that the person that has a really high risk or that's having symptoms really close together and they're seeing you during that acute presentation, those are people you might think about admitting for the workup because uh, their risk of recurrent symptoms or progressing to a full stroke if like they had transient symptoms. Um, Paul, I don't know about you, but I tend to see the person that, that had these random neurologic symptoms a couple weeks ago or a month ago, and then they're seeing me, and I'm not sure what to do with it. I'm, how, do you, how do you usually handle that and decide if you're going to admit them or work them up as an outpatient?
0: Yeah. And I, I get that all the time, actually. Maybe all the time is overstating it, but enough that it's um, concerning. And so I guess the, the question is, Is was this a TIA? Is this patient at risk for stroke? And how do I think about this case and sort of risk stratify them? And how urgent uh, how urgently do I have to worry about those things? So this might be a good time to talk about the ABCD squared score, um, which is not something that I had used too much in clinical practice before hearing this episode, which is kind of this neat tool. We've linked to it in the show notes. It's also, it's on MDCalc, which is a great website. Basically, the A is for age greater than 60. B is for blood pressure greater than 140 over 90. C is clinical features of TIA, the most concerning one of the highest scoring one being unilateral weakness. D is for duration of symptoms with greater than 60 being the highest score. And then the other D is a history of diabetes. And if you add these up, if you have a score, I want to say greater than 3, I think, throws you into uh, at least moderate risk for subsequent stroke if this is in fact a true TIA that the patient presented with initially. It's also, I think we talked about this a little bit off air, it's, it's been validated as a tool to actually determine whether or not a patient has had, truly had a TIA or not as well. So it's been used in two different contexts. One, to determine the likelihood of a stroke after an initial TIA and one is this a true TIA, though the caveat being the settings in which that was studied, this was done by uh, expert neurologists and not the outpatient setting and not by emergency medicine doctors. So it's a nifty score to start sort of risk stratify your patients that you're worried about TIA or risk for stroke, um, but it is not definitive. But in any case, it's a good way to sort of how worried should I be and how hard should I start looking at um, stroke risk factors and what should I do to, to evaluate the patient? Do you
1: usually, we're going to talk about the workup next, and he gave us a great framework for that, Paul, but for that patient Let's say they have a score that's less than three, like a score of zero to two, but the symptoms sounded real, and they said it was a month ago, or even if they have a score of three, but it was a month ago. Do you admit those people? Do you try to get the workup as an outpatient? How do you do it? I, I think,
0: God cut this out if this is malpractice, but you know, in my own personal practice, when it's that remote, I, I probably would opt to pursue the outpatient workup rather than inpatient. I think if someone comes in with a relatively recent episode and has those risk factors, I think that that's when the acuity probably matters more because I believe the chance for having the stroke is actually highest in the immediate yeah. after period of the TIA like symptoms. And then as time kind of goes on, then you're less likely to have the stroke. So if you have someone who's coming to you a month after the fact and says it was weird back in January, I had this thing then I you can probably feel a little bit better about sort of doing a deliberate outpatient workup. But more recently, if you think there was true TIA, the likelihood of stroke is of subsequent stroke is higher and that might change my, uh, that might change the intensity of the workup, including admission for the workup. That's
1: that's what I do. I mean, I I think that's I, I think that's what most people do when you when you get those vague remote symptoms, you'd almost feel silly admitting them to the hospital when at that point they feel fine. It might even be hard to convince them that they need to be admitted to the hospital. But the patient that within the past week or two, if they've had one or recurrent episodes and they have a high score, that's the person that I would think about admitting. And Beth, do you want to remind the audience, like, what's the broad framework that he gave us for, like, thinking about how he thinks about, like, where he's going to look for the cause?
2: Yeah. In terms of, like, he he did a good job sort of going through the different, you, you know, if you're kind of trying to address the parenchyma, what you would do for that. For this outpatient kind of workup, you know, you might start with the blood tests, the CBC, lipids, hemoglobin A1C, like, is this person diabetic? And that that may be, like, a risk factor that you can identify that's new for them. And this was their first, you know, so to speak, symptom of that. But yeah, the the workup that he, he kind of went through the more systematic way, like, are you looking at the parenchyma, looking for a CT or MRI, are you looking at the vessels, a carotid ultrasound, MRA or CTA with, with contrast to get that view of the anterior posterior circulation? And then he dove into some of the more, you know, the next step, like, are you seeing the cardiac aspects of this? Like, does this patient have... You know risk factors that make you want to get an EKG, an echo, cardiac monitor. So I think it was it was very helpful to sort of have it in these different buckets of, you know, right. targeting a source, you know, sort of for the for the TIA stroke.
1: And there's there's some nuance to the buckets with the brain, of course. Like the CT head without contrast is just looking for blood. The MRI is, as you said, looking at the parenchyma to see if there's evidence of stroke. And then when looking at the vessels we talked about, this is a way that I had never really thought about it. The the carotid artery image is really going to only look at the anterior circulation. So if it's somebody where you think they had anterior circulation symptoms, it makes sense to look there, but if you're not sure or if they had posterior circulation symptoms, you really have to get a CT angio or an MRA in order to look at both the anterior and posterior circulation. And then We talked about, we asked him about the thrombophilia workup. Paul, you got to look for antiphospholipid antibody syndrome in everybody, right?
0: Yeah, no, it's part of my routine screening, either, you know, lipids, A1C, and then antiphospholipid (laughs) workup. Yep, for sure. But
1: he did say young patients without like a clear risk factor, that's someone you might think about doing that workup for, uh, typically under 60. And then, Paul, we talked about with the cardiac workup, like the the PFO closure, uh, we should do that for everybody, right?
0: So specifically the bubble study to see if we need to do a PFO closure. And it turns out that it's probably that evaluation is best reserved for your younger patients. I will um, note
2: that younger in this de- is defined as younger than 60.
1: Which is,
0: yeah, which sure. is are probably Generous. twice
1: best Generous. age. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. so Well, young for patients who are having strokes, certainly, sure. I, I would say, at least put it that way, because it's a fairly common finding. And if you have other risk factors, that's probably the right tree to, to bark up as opposed to chasing down a PFO closure in an older patient who has a TIA or a stroke. So sort of trying to hunt down the PFO and then finding it, you may be over diagnosing and treating something that is not the actual underlying etiology, because probably if you make it to 60, you have a lot of other risk factors for, uh, for stroke or TIA. So avoid it and the workup in in your older patients and consider for the younger ones along with, I guess, your your thrombophilic workup.
2: I had no idea how common PFOs were. I mean, re-listening to this episode, he cited like it's 20, 25% of people will have a PFO if you look for it, which I thought was like crazy high.
0: (laughs) That seems like a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And the other thing that he mentioned was there was this, there was this toast trial from the 1990s, uh, or the nineteen the the late nineteen hundreds, as my children would call it, Paul. They, they, sure. Yeah. Right. Um, anyway,
0: as a result, just by the, by the by, I believe uh, young Garbs was three years old when the TOAST trial came out. <laughs> we, we now learned from a prior episode
1: <laughs> that trial talked about the classifications of stroke, and uh, when you're talk when you're thinking about the cardiac workup, Paul, there's this cryptogenic stroke where about twenty twenty five percent of the time you just don't exactly know where it came from, and within that you don't know exactly where it came from bucket is this embolic stroke of unknown source where maybe it came from the heart maybe it came from the aorta you know like a plaque flung off but you you might see sh- like strokes in multiple territories that get you thinking it's somewhere you know there's a clot coming centrally coming up and in those patients You should really do extended cardiac monitoring. And he mentioned like 28 days, something like that is the standard. And in some cases, he even was implying that some institutions will like send someone out with a loop recorder if they have a really high suspicion, which are these implantable recorders. And that was a practice I haven't really seen that yet locally, although. I should say that, you know, depending on where you practice, you may or may not see like internists, sometimes they don't take care of the stroke. Sometimes the neurology services do. So that that may be part of why I haven't seen it as much. But definitely extended cardiac monitoring, especially if you're really thinking about a cardioembolic source or if they have this embolic stroke of unknown source, you should think about that. But, Paul, uh, what about treatment for embolic stroke of unknown source? We were at ACP. We had a, a nice pearl there from Dr. LEAP Hunter Fund.
0: Yes, right. And I, I think it's just, I feel like ESUS is one of those acronyms that if it didn't exist, we'd have to make something up to create it because it just rolls right off the tongue. But the, the 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 point that was taken away from ACP, at least, is that there's no proven benefit to, to active anticoagulation in ESUS just over and above um, a baby aspirin. And in fact, that may actually cause harm if you do so, which is one of the reasons why you need to be so diligent about your workup and, and really do your best to try to figure out exactly what it is that you're dealing with.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So don't don't just, because you suspect AFib uh, or an embolic source, don't just like uh, indiscriminately put that person on anticoagulation. That's really not recommended. What is recommended for stroke, especially if you think it was like a non-cardioembolic stroke, is you can put that person on a high dose statin and you can put that person on at least a baby aspirin. And it does get a little bit nuanced there. Uh, from there about whether or not you're gonna put somebody on dual antiplatelet therapy. So we can we can dig into that a little bit. The I love that, w- that
2: trial name. The Sparkle and is that am I saying that right? The Sparkle uh-huh. Investigators of two thousand six. Yeah. That's Sparkle that's
1: investigators. One. Yeah. This one this was us he he mentioned this on the show. This was where they gave a in eighty milligrams to people who had had a stroke, and they saw a reduced risk of future stroke when they got, and they were trying to get an LDL down like less than 70 in that trial. Um, you know, one of the things that came out of that trial, Paul, was that there, they, when they did like a subgroup analysis, there was maybe increased hemorrhagic. Uh, stroke after that, and I think that scared people off the high dose statin thing for a while. but what I see in practice now is most patients with stroke are on a statin often a high high dose statin like high intensity like a forty of a torvastatin or eighty of a torvastatin. after that
0: yep, yep same so uh I think most people if they just sneeze or or mention they had chest pain seventeen years ago, they end up on a high dose statin yeah so it's, there's a lot of a lot more fearlessness with statin therapy these days.
1: Hey listeners, I'm so excited to tell you about our new sponsor, 10,000. They are a training, fitness, and athletic apparel brand. They sent me a whole bunch of gear, and as a amateur athlete, but someone who cares about performance and and who is doing training on pretty much a daily basis, I really need clothes that aren't just that cotton that gets all soggy when you're working out. They sent me their seven-inch lined interval short. It is a very durable short, and what I love about this is not just the odor protection that it has, you know, that's nice, but they have these no-bounce pockets, even a no-bounce pocket for your phone, and if you've ever worn, like, the traditional mesh shorts and tried to put your phone in there, and you're trying to run or do any sort of activity, that thing's bouncing around, causing some minor trauma, but but this, these shorts have the no-bounce pockets, and for me, that is a game-changer. I've also really loved the 7-inch Sessions short which is like a minimalist running short. It has this back hip pocket and a side hip pocket. Side hip pocket, you can put like your cards, your keys, the back pocket used for your phone. And it's also a no bounce pocket. You know, that's been game changing for me. And they also sent me this lightweight shirt. I just, it it barely feels like you're wearing a shirt when you're working out. It's so comfortable. It's great for these hot summer days that we're in right now. And I'm not the only one that likes this stuff. They have over 10,000 five-star reviews. They offer free shipping and returns, and it's a lifetime guarantee, so there's no risk. 10,000 is offering our listeners 15% off your purchase. Go to 10,000.cc and enter code CURB to receive 15% off your purchase. That's 10,000.cc and enter the code CURB. For chronic stroke therapy, uh, aspirin, at as of the time we recorded this with Dr. Favilla, um, antiplatelet monotherapy, whether you're going to use aspirin or whether you're going to use clopidogrel, um, there really wasn't a clear winner there. I, I think you know, there are some studies you can look at and, and maybe there's a little bit of an edge for clopidogrel, but um, there are some other considerations there. So in general, whatever's affordable for the patient, they're willing to take aspirin, clopidogrel, you can put them on. In the acute phase, though, it's a little bit different. And Paul, are you, is this something you're seeing done locally, the, uh, the the shorter course dual antiplatelet for patients?
0: Yep. Yep. I, I am uh, more and more where you will see patients who are initially started on aspirin and clopidogrel and then after, say, about three months, then sort of deescalate to just aspirin monotherapy. Hopefully, ideally, if there's good follow-up and they're not just sort of grandfathered into both for in perpetuity, which sometimes happen. But yes, I think when someone's following along and being thoughtful about it, then yes, Um Dual at first, and then after a short period of time, then just deescalating to monotherapy.
1: Yeah, and this is with specifically with minor stroke or TIA, and minor stroke is defined. They have there's a certain disability score to it, um, and then or TIA. So minor stroke or TIA, the patients that have that, and uh, if if they have what you think is like small vessel disease, or if it's a cryptogenic stroke, those patients specifically get 21 days of dual antiplatelet. And the reason for that is, as we mentioned up top in the episode, it's a it's a front-loaded process. So after a stroke or TIA, early on, they're much more likely to have another event, and that's when you get the most balance of benefits and harms to be on dual antiplatelet. So 21 days for those folks if you don't have a clear source. Uh, if they have cardioembolic source, they're going to be on anticoagulation. That's a different patient. And if you find extracranial carotid stenosis – then those patients if they're going for a carotid endarterectomy they're going to be on aspirin before and after just monotherapy if they get a stent a carotid stent they'll be on dual antiplatelet before and after and that's you know that's you're going to have a, a surgeon involved there that's going to be kind of guiding you through the antiplatelets so it is it is a little bit nuanced and typically our guests not our guest the speaker at ACP mentioned that up to 90 days uh, for people that are found to have like an intracranial carotid stenosis, those people might get dual antiplatelet for for 90 days. So I guess these are people who can't get a carotid endarterectomy or a stent. Those patients would get like 90 days of dual antiplatelet. Um, so this is the the 21 day folks are the ones where you either didn't find a source or it's small vessel stuff. So they get 21 days. But if you if you do see large vessel and it's too high up into the skull to to stent or intervene on, they get they get 90 days. So I found I find that really helpful. And this is a process that I now at least feel a little bit more comfortable, Paul, where, you know, which workup I should do, which workup I shouldn't do, Bubble, not, not a bubble study for everyone. Everyone doesn't get thrombophilia workup. And I have a pretty good idea of who needs dual antiplatelet and for how long now.
0: Yeah, Neuro has always terrified me. It always will terrify me, but I felt marginally better after listening to this episode.
1: Yeah. So, any any final take home points that you uh before we get to the outro, is there anything we're missing, Garbs?
2: I don't think so. This is a good episode. Um it really is helpful and I think it put Yeah, there is a lot of fear and of neurology and anything related to stroke and I, you know, I still when I have to think about localizing the lesion, I said I was talking how great it is to think about localizing the lesion when it's like one of my least favorite things to do on the spot. <laughs> um but you know this episode was very approachable i think it was very um straightforward and took a topic that could be a little overwhelming and put it into put it into simple terms for simple people like me
0: (laughs) i think yeah i think we should do like a stroke care oh go ahead oh i was just gonna say in primary care you know we are sort of the stewards of the ongoing care like you know in the acute setting clearly it's it's neurology's game and god bless and good luck is uh, they are far better equipped to do it but a lot of the times the the ongoing um, management of the antiplatelet therapy and sort of the statin therapy and all the other considerations like that, that often falls sort of squilling into our lab. So I think it's at least good to have a sense of what what we're working with and where we're supposed to be going because uh, oftentimes we are the, the point of continuity for better or for worse. For better. It's, it's for better. <laughs> so with that,
1: let's get to the outro.
0: This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole yummy (laughs) this is still delightful get your show notes at the curbsiders.com and while you're there sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox and we're committed to providing you with
1: high value practice changing knowledge and to do that we need your feedback so please subscribe rate and review the show on apple podcasts you can contact us at the curbsiders at gmail.com special thanks to our social media team beth garbs garbatelli on twitter Mad Dog, Maddie Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov is on the website, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto.
2: I've been Beth Garbs Garbatelli.
0: And we should be sure to thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music you're doubtless hearing behind us. We should also thank Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you, and goodbye.